Hello, and welcome back to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I am delighted to have you here with me for episode 23 of this film and entertainment industry podcast. Once again, follow me on my socials, Instagram, TikTok, and Letterboxd at Sidekick Critic. I post stories, clips when I think of it, and on Letterboxd, which is what I'm most active on, I log all of my movie watching habits, which for me is a lot of fun. And I think it's a lot of fun to just go through and rate and review movies. So I highly recommend you do that and give me a follow because I'll keep my eye out for what anyone else is watching. So like I mentioned, this is episode 23 and I have a lot to talk about today. There's some big news and I have a ton of movies. I have I think it's eight movies I'm going to talk about in this one episode. So we're going to fly through a bunch of those. But as I mentioned, there's some big news. It was announced late on Sunday that the Writers Guild of America and AMPTP have reached a tentative agreement on a new work contract. This is massive. Uh, The strike has been going on for 146 days before this agreement has finally been reached. Negotiations picked up late last Wednesday as the two sides confirmed they were talking and that they're getting closer to a deal according to reports and that they would continue negotiating and that went on for a few days into the weekend and late at night were these negotiations being struck and held. And then the joint statement from the Writers Guild and AMPTP said it's a tentative agreement on a three-year deal that is subject to drafting the final contract language. So while nothing is finalized yet, uh, both sides are talking about it, and the Writers Guild has said in the past they would not say anything until there was something worth saying. And in fact, uh, their statement kind of laid out what the next steps are for the strike and what to expect. The first step is, as I mentioned, the drafting of that final contract language. That's getting the lawyers in there to make sure everything looks right according to the contract and the legalese is all good. After that, the negotiating committee for WGA, which is those people nominated to sit down with the studios, they vote to recommend the agreement to the Writers Guild of America West, the board for them, and then the council for the Writers Guild of America East, because WGA is split into the West and East, and they're both headed by the board and council. So once that final contract language is finalized, that negotiating committee will recommend that the board and council respectively look at this deal. Then the board and council look it over, and they vote themselves on whether they're going to authorize a contract ratification vote by its membership, which is essentially saying each, the East and the West, their leadership is saying, okay, we approve this, we're going to send it to our members now for them to vote. And then the final step is for that membership ratification vote. That's how we get to this is all done and we do not need to talk about this anymore. But those steps may take some time. Um, Step three, which is the board and council voting to send it to the members, at that time is also when those two bodies will decide whether to lift the straining order at a certain date and time pending the ratification by membership. Essentially saying that that's when the strike will actually end. Technically, as of right now, the Writers Guild is still on strike. We are in this weird kind of middle ground. Um, It'll probably be five days minimum before this deal is fully ratified by the members. They are planning on leadership getting these deals and voting and sending it to members by Tuesday. That's their tentative plan right now. 
that would be steps one to three that I talked about there of the final contract language and negotiating committee and then the board and council. So there's a lot of steps to kind of follow along here and a lot of different bodies that have to vote and approve. But as I said right now, no one is returning to work. They are still technically on strike until they're specifically authorized to return by the guild. But any there are no more sanctioned picketed events from the WGA. They have suspended their picketing activities. They will not be setting up or telling people to go anywhere, though they are still encouraging writers to go join SAG-AFTRA on the picket lines. The double strike has made this weird in-between where writers are picketing for on behalf of the actors now when previously the actors were picketing on behalf of the writers. But it is still very promising, and the statement sounds like things are looking up and that this deal will be ratified in the end. There are no details on the exact deal yet. Uh, WGA said they will not announce any details until, quote, until the last I is dotted. They're going to let their lawyers comb through everything, make sure it all looks good, make sure the board and council both get their eyes on it and agree before members get it. And at that point, once it's out to all the members, it's going to be out in the public. So they'll probably put out a statement outlining the deal if I had to guess. But in regards to it, they said the agreement is exceptional with meaningful gains and protections for writers across the board in the industry. And as I've talked about in the past, the biggest sticking points in these negotiations came down to quite to four or five major points that was really holding everything up. A base level pay increase. That's just whatever their cost of living, essentially, everything's getting more expensive in life. They want to be paid more. The two sides weren't quite close originally on what that appropriate amount was. Then there was streaming residuals. As the residual landscape has changed with cable and cord cutters resulting in less income and streamers now being how people rewatch shows and movies, writers want to be paid as do the actors for that. So that means there's some kind of agreement on streaming residuals, which is massive for the industry at large. Minimum staffing requirements was something the writers were asking for, and that was an interesting one because I know not only the studios, but there are some within the industry who said a minimum staffing requirement might not be best. It should be on a show-to-show or movie-to-movie basis, but the writers wanted to ensure that there would be writing jobs on every show, every movie, whatever it may be. And to go with that was protections against AI use, essentially saying that AI will not be generating or fixing or working on scripts that writers are working on. This is work that belongs to us. It belongs to the writers in our union, and we want it to stay that way. Those are massive things that apparently they have come to an agreement on. I'm very curious to see what the actual language is and where they met in the middle, or if the studios finally gave in and said, okay, you can have what you want with this. Like I mentioned, the strike will hopefully be fully ended by leadership before the end of the week, and then it'll take some time, as with large unions, it always does to actually ratify by membership. But it's going to be some time still before things get back to normal. Uh, Talk shows such as all the late night guys, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, and other talk shows, including the daytime ones like Drew Barrymore's, are likely to return by early October as they can get the writers in, start scheduling, and They'll have those time slots open on TV, but scripted TV for fall is likely done unless there's some comedy shows or something of a lower level of production that already has scripts banked. The writers have to get into the writer's room. They have to write, refine, and prepare 
production for all of these shows. So maybe we'll see some return to regularly scheduled programming in early 2024. But for the fall and winter scheduled, I expect it to be most of that reality TV shows that cable networks have really banked up on and have been holding on to to release during this gap in content. It's very unlikely that any delayed movies will be pulled back into the 2023 schedule. Like I mentioned, the actors are still on strike. This is just a writer's agreement. So when a lot of those are projects were delayed because you couldn't have the actors promote, the actors still not came, cannot promote any movies. This is only the writers that are going to be getting back to work. So that movie schedule seems to be pretty set in stone at this point. But those major sticking points and agreements on them, such as streaming residuals and AI protections, really opens the doors for AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA to resume negotiations. Those were major sticking points between those two parties as talks fell apart and the actors decide to go on strike. So it'll be interesting. Regarding streaming residuals, what that really comes down to is tracking what shows do on streaming and not just the new releases where you're going to have Disney or Netflix be very excited to put out the numbers of, oh, 80 million hours of Knives Out was streamed on its first weekend release. They're happy to put those numbers out. It makes them look good. It's a matter of writers and actors need to know what does the office stream daily? How much money should I be making? Because you're making a ton of money on people signing up just to watch the office. So that is a massive point if they've agreed to that. And whatever the writer's and studios agreement looks like in form of tracking and getting streaming residuals is likely going to be the groundwork for where, when negotiations resume with SAG-AFTRA, where those negotiations are going to start on streaming residuals. They're going to look at the writers and say, either you gave them this or this is what we did for the writers. How do we go from here? What's next? And I'm sure there's going to be some uh, wording of the contract that the actors really like and they're going to take it or some wording that the studios are like, no, this was only for them. You have to have a different agreement. Both sides are obviously going to fight for what's more beneficial to them. But the fact that there is now ground being made on streaming residuals is really industry changing news. And I'm curious to see what that language in the contract actually is and what that means for streaming residuals. And then the other sticking point that's kind of a bigger issue for the actors and will be interesting to see where that goes is AI protections. Where the Writers Guild needed protection for AI written scripts, SAG was worried about AI technologies being used to digitally recreate and own an actor's likeness. That's very different technology use for AI. It's a very different form of protection for each. It'll be that's what I think will be really the concern for actors and what they need to see resolved in whatever their contract negotiation ends up being. Because studios, they can save a lot of money using AI to digitally recreate extras and background actors, but that wipes thousands of people out of the industry. And it's unfair for an actor to not own their own likeness. So it'd be really interesting to see where this goes. I'm wondering what pushed the agreement to finally happen on the studio side. They seemed pretty set on not talking with either party and letting things run their course 
other executives have been quoted in the past as saying, we're going to wait till people start losing their homes to resume negotiations. A couple things may have changed recently. I know both Warner Brothers and Disney have put out reports detailing how much money they expect to, uh, how much lower they expect their revenues to be for 2023. And it was in the hundreds of millions. That could be what has pushed this there. The CEO showed up at the negotiations for this rather than just sending their negotiators from the AMPTP alliance, which may have also pushed it on. You had David Zaslav and Bob Iger from Warner Brothers and Disney, respectively, who are at the negotiations, sitting at the table with the Writers Guild to get this deal done. It's possible with those earnings reports and with projections and shareholders in these companies being unhappy with the projections that this kind of lit a fire under the asses of CEOs and said, okay, we have to get this deal done. We have to try to get back to some sense of normalcy. And the writer's hurdle was first and arguably easier as the writers really needed a deal. They've been on strike for 146 days. It was time for them to get a deal done, to get back to work, to get some amount of production up and running on all of the banked projects these studios have. So this is great on that angle. It's I, I really hope to see more information come out as what happened at the negotiation table, what the final language is, and what members think of this deal. As the negotiating committee is saying, this is a great deal. It's excellent. But that's the negotiating committee. The union's made up of thousands of members. It'll be, I cannot wait to dive deep and do a lot of reading. You can be sure I'll be back here just to talk about what that contract means and what that means for the industry as a whole and what we can expect that to mean for the actor strike and how that changes things. I'm very excited to see. I hope you are too. Okay. So as I mentioned, I have eight movies I want to talk about today. That's a lot of movies to try to squeeze into one episode of a podcast. Because of that, I'm going to bring back my rapid fire reviews. Four movies off the cuff here going real quick. Let's dive right in. Here's my review for Armageddon. I finally crossed this movie off of my watch list after skipping past it for years. I've heard about how great it is. I was avoiding it, but I finally got down to it. And the movie is a perfect encapsulation of a Michael Bay directed action movie. The early on in the film, there's over the top destruction in New York City from relatively small asteroid debris. Later on, as larger debris begins to land, only two cities out of the entire world are affected by massive debris and massive widespread destruction being Paris and Shanghai, which is kind of hilarious to me that those two cities alone were picked to be destroyed. About 45 minutes into the movie, I was like, I don't really get it. I don't get why this movie is beloved. By the end, I got it. I understood the production value, the set pieces, the practical effects for the 90s. This movie looked really good. Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, I really enjoyed them in this. You had Liv Tyler, who for some reason, it seems like Liv Tyler's character gets to sit on the sideline a lot. She did for three Lord of the Rings movies. She did in Armageddon. Not much to do, but she adds to the movie. It was fun. By the end, I really did get why everyone loves this movie. I really enjoyed it. I won't be watching it again anytime soon, but I will see it as a future rewatch one day for a Armageddon-esque, end-of-the-world, fun action movie. Armageddon's getting an 8.2 out of 10. So happy I finally crossed this off my watch list. All right, up next, here's my review for Yesterday. 
this movie was such an interesting and unique take on telling on a movie about a band or musician or singer. I really enjoyed that it didn't focus on the story of the band and where they came from and where they went. Rather, it just focused on the music of the Beatles. And that was really enjoyable for me as someone who listened to the Beatles growing up because my parents loved them and because I grew to love them myself. Ed Sheeran's in the movie. He was way better than I thought. There's a lot more of him than I expected. And he put in a pretty decent acting performance, which I enjoyed. The movie has gotten me to listen to a ton of Beatles music, add a bunch to my like songs, start listening to just This Is The Beatles playlist on Spotify. So that's been really enjoyable for me. Overall, it's just a solid and satisfying movie. If you are at all a fan of the Beatles, if you know some of their music, this movie is worth a watch because it's fun to sing along. It's fun to just be along for the ride. It tells a very unique and interesting story. I'm happy with the character progression, how the story went, how it ended. Yesterday is going to get a 7.4 out of 10. Anyone should really watch this movie. It is a good time. Okay. Halfway there on our rapid fire reviews, let's keep it rolling. Here's my review for King Richard. I really did not know anything about the story of the Williams sisters, Venus and Serena Williams, the two of the greatest female tennis players of all time. And this was a blast for me to watch. I threw it on on a whim Sunday when Abby and I had been watching the US Open finale randomly and were enjoying it. Later that day, we were like, let's watch a movie. And this dawned on me and I threw it on. I didn't realize that Venus was the initial star of the family and that her rise to fame was kind of the announcement of the Williams sisters. Obviously, Serena would go on to be the greatest female tennis player of all time. It was interesting for me to see that from that angle. Will Smith did win Best Actor for his role as Richard. Will Smith won Best Actor for his role as Richard Williams in this movie. I honestly don't think I was blown away by his performance, but it wasn't terrible. It was a good performance. I may have to go watch some movies from that year to see if anyone else deserved the Best Actor award more. That is the infamous Oscars where he smacked the shit out of Chris Rock. So there's a little bit of a stain on that Oscar, but overall the movie is very enjoyable. It got me to kind of like tennis, want to watch some YouTube highlights of tennis. 8.4 out of 10 for King Richard. This movie should be watched by everyone. It is a very interesting story. All right, just one left. Here's my review for Up in the Air. I was really thrown off by this movie. It stars George Clooney and Anna Kendrick. George Clooney works as a consultant that lays people off all around the country and flies everywhere. I think at one point he said he's in the air for 300 days out of the year. So it's an interesting story, not one I would typically watch. I saw a clip of it on TikTok and I threw it on on a whim. The movie is kind of depressing a little bit. It's definitely more solemn and it doesn't follow typical tropes and endings where everyone gets their happy ending. It stays true to the characters and the story and their progression. And I actually really liked that aspect of it. I think there's something to be said for a movie subverting your expectations in that way. And not for the sake of subverting them, but for the sake of telling a good story. And this did tell a good story. I don't know if that I'd recommend it to anyone, though. I'm obviously pretty deep in my movie bag and what I watch. Unless you're a huge fan of George Clooney or Anna Kendrick, this is probably one you could pass on. I'm, I enjoyed it. I'm happy I watched it. I love both of them as actors. Up in the air, 6.8 out of 10. 
decent overall. Decent. And those are my rapid fire reviews. That's four movies, and I think it was like six minutes there. So that's really going pretty rapid, which I was looking for. It is fun to do these rapid fire reviews every once in a while. I don't think I'm going to keep doing them every episode. I've liked that I've drifted, drifted away from that for a bit. But it is fun to kind of force myself to quickly recap and go over a movie. And as I'm talking about it, a new thought pops in my head and I got to cut a thought short or spit it out or make it work or pass it over because it probably wasn't that good of a thought. Those are a lot of fun for me, though. But that is my last rapid fire review for today. Okay, moving on. I have a trilogy I'm excited to talk about today. Two of them will kind of be rapid fire reviews, like I mentioned. But I'm here to talk about the trilogy of The Equalizer films. Let's start. Here's my review for the first movie, The Equalizer. This really caught me off guard. It avoided a lot of typical action movie cliches. For what is supposed to be an action movie, it was definitely more of a suspense. It had great cinematography that I really visually struck me and sucked me into the movie early on. Denzel carries these movies on his back. It, he's the reason why I loved the first one. It's a very layered and almost thought-provoking performance from him for what is a kind of shallow movie premise overall. I can't quite say what it is that really sucked me into the movie. It's all these different aspects adding together. I think the suspense was built very, very well, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. I really did. The first equalizer is without a doubt, the best of the series, in my opinion. The end sequence in the Home Mart, which is essentially a off-brand Home Depot because Home Depot didn't want to license their name out for this. It was a fantastic way to cap off this movie. It could not have ended any better. It is a perfect ending for what the movie was. The first Equalizer, 8.4 out of 10. All right, moving on. The Equalizer 2. This, of the trilogy, The Equalizer 2 is my least favorite of all three of them. It just, I wasn't as invested in the vengeance story that was going for Denzel's character, Robert McCall. Denzel is still great in this, but the actual story couldn't suck me in. I think the performance of Pedro Pascal and other antagonists was a clear step down from what we got in The Equalizer. Everything about it was just a slight step down. The cinematography wasn't as good, the story, the acting the setting, the action, the suspense. It was a slight step down in every way I can possibly think of. It's not the end of the world, but I would have liked to see the second movie be better. I think it had a structure to be better. Pedro Pascal, this is obviously years ago, hadn't quite blown up yet. Maybe if you remake it with him as the antagonist, it'd be better now. But The Equalizer 2, 6.8 out of 10. I wanted more from that one. The main event, the in-theaters release, here's my review for The Equalizer 3. This is right in the middle in terms of how much I liked any of the movies in The Equalizer trilogy. I, I liked it. Overall, I will say I liked it. The movie's about two hours long. Realistically, an hour of this movie is just Denzel walking through the streets of the small town in Italy. Which is fine, because Denzel... He's so charismatic. He's a blast to watch on screen. I could watch a two-hour movie of him just exploring Italy. I don't have a problem with that at all. The cinematography is where I kind of had a little bit of an issue with this. It could have been amazing. I mean, Italy is known for being beautiful and vibrant, and for some reason, everything was almost 
desaturated and on a grayscale. I didn't quite understand why. Um, the movie started great with this long shot through a villa of the carnage left behind by Robert McCall, which was fantastic. It was a great start to the movie, but it really slowed down. The story moved slow. There was a lot of exposition, unnecessary exposition, I should say. But there's something about this. Maybe it's Denzel's charisma on screen. Maybe it's the fact that they call these action movies when they're more suspense. They're not big action set pieces. They're small. It's in close quarters. Something about these movies sucks me in and gets me to enjoy them. Maybe I'm just a guy that loves action movies. That's probably really what it is. And then what was, I think, the best part about The Equalizer 3 was the return to a fantastic end sequence where Denzel's characters essentially becomes the boogeyman to this mafia family in Italy. And that whole sequence was great. It really was a side of these movies we hadn't quite seen or it was done in a different way that I really enjoyed. I like that it avoids some of the typical action tropes of Denzel hitting his low point, really struggling, possibly not winning. No, Robert McCall is a badass. He's going to win. And it's okay to know that. I wasn't worried about him at any point because you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to feel the fear that the antagonists feel. And this movie does a very good job of setting that up. The movie's done decently. I talked about it briefly at, uh, in my box office update for my last episode. It opened at that $34 million domestically. In 25 days, it's done $81 million here in the United States. It's at $148 million worldwide in gross so far. It's slightly below Equalizer 1 and 2, which is fine, I think. I talked about this, how in a pre-COVID, you want the third movie of a trilogy to be the biggest financial success of the trilogy. Expectations have changed. Standards have changed in the post-COVID film industry. Denzel obviously wasn't out there to market and promote this movie at all, which probably would have helped it quite a bit as who doesn't love Denzel. But for it to be right on par with its predecessors in this industry climate, I think is a big success. I would be happy if this was my movie and I was seeing those kind of numbers. I think it'll probably finish right in between Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, 167 million and D&D's, that's Dungeons and Dragons, 207 million. It'll really have to push to hit that 200 million. It's already been out for almost a month viewing windows on movies. Unless you're someone like Christopher Nolan and Oppenheimer, those viewing windows are getting a lot shorter. Stuff's getting out to video on demand much quicker. So it will be interesting to see where this movie ends up at the box office. But Equalizer 3 is enjoyable. I think if you liked the previous two, if you're a big Denzel fan, if you're a big action movie or suspense fan... This is good to see in theaters, but I don't know that I would say it's worth that $13 movie ticket plus the price of a drink and popcorn, whatever snack you want. I saw it because I have A-list, because it doesn't cost me extra. This was really the perfect A-list movie in my opinion. I wouldn't have been happy if I had paid full price for a ticket and concessions, but I didn't spend a dime on that day to go see this movie and that is ideal for me, so... The Equalizer 3, 7.4 out of 10, right in the middle of the Equalizer trilogy, and a good cap to what was a good trilogy overall. I really enjoyed it. Okay, I only have one more movie left to talk about today. Another currently in theaters movie 
here's my review for A Haunting in Venice, the latest film of the Kenneth Branagh, Hercule Poirot directed mystery movies. When looking at this in comparison to Death on the Nile, A Haunting in Venice is so, so, so much better. Um, the first thing that really struck me in this movie was the cinematography. It was such a vibrant start to the movie. It was very clean and clear. And having a movie in Venice, it looked great. It was the first notable step up where I'm like, okay, I really enjoyed this. Then the movie took on a much darker theme and tone, which I really liked. Death on the Nile just flopped on all angles for me, but Haunting in Venice kind of established itself as this is going to be darker. This isn't what you're expecting. This isn't what you're used to. We're taking a turn, doing something different, and I really enjoyed that. It fit the movie well, and it helped it find itself and what it was doing. As I've come to expect now with these Kenneth Branagh films, they are a bit over the top, especially when you look at the acting performances, but I do now believe that's kind of the point. They are based on Agatha Christie novels. This one specifically is based on the novel Halloween Party. And from what I understand in her novels, the characters kind of are caricatures of themselves. And that's how the actors are portraying the roles in these movies, which this comes back down to the same thing. My expectations going to the film, I think expecting this to be bad, expecting the acting to be a little bit over the top. I was able to digest it better and to enjoy it more and really focus on the story. And the story was pretty good for this. I did like it. Kenneth Branagh's performance as Her Hercule Poirot, I can never really get that to roll off my tongue right. His performance, I think, was very good. And they added some nuance to his character that I liked. He was dealing with his own inner conflicts and demons, trying to figure out what this role is, as detective meant to him and what he wants to do with it, and how he wants to move forward with his life. I think Rana did a great job in that. I think he brought out his best performance yet from what I've seen, which I really liked. The movie starred Michelle Yeoh. I love Michelle Yeoh. I could watch two hours of her alone, essentially did with everything everywhere all at once last year. She's fantastic. I would have loved to get so much more of her. I really loved her as an addition to this movie. Tina Fey was also in the movie. She was decent, but kind of fell victim to at times. It felt more like Tina Fey than her character. Her character was almost a Agatha Christie stand-in, which I thought was interesting. But the cast really did work well together. They played well off each other. I feel like Kenneth Branagh's directing went much better in Haunting in Venice than Death on the Nile. It's hard to not constantly compare the movies, especially when I truly hated death on the nile last year so this is a massive step up maybe at all whatever it is is expectations i went into this with barely any expectations just the hope that based on the trailer would be different and be better and in the end it was the movie opened to 14 million dollars domestically which was not good uh was only slightly above death on the nile well below murder on the orient express it didn't even finish in first the box office's opening weekend. It fell second to The Nun 2. In 10 days, it's done $71 million worldwide. You would like to see the movie do a lot more. But it hasn't, and that's unfortunate. I don't know that we're ever going to get a fourth of this. If Kenneth Branagh is enjoying them and someone will fund him, I'm sure they will keep doing them. Uh, he clearly seems to enjoy the Hercule Poirot role, but 
Murder on the Orient Express seems to be the most successful of these movies. That opened at $28 million versus this 14. That's half of what the original opened at. It's They're trending in the wrong direction. From a financial standpoint, The story-wise, this is coming back up, but it'll be curious to see if he gets a fourth crack at this. These are kind of mirrored with uh, Knives Knives Out movies, those murder mysteries where Knives Out movies have been way more critically acclaimed and massive financial successes. So I'm curious to see if they will do a fourth. I don't think we need a fourth. I think we can leave it there and be happy with the characters and story that Kenneth Branagh directed and acted and built. And they'll be looked back on fondly one day as decent mystery movies. Overall, A Haunting in Venice is going to get a 7.1 out of 10 for me. Another one that I do think you could wait to watch at home, unless you're big on the Halloween season, you love spooky season, then go watch it because it is a good way to kick off the spooky season. I said it like three times there, but it is a good way to kick that off. Haunting in Venice, 7.1 out of 10. Okay, and that is my last movie review for today. Eight movies in one episode. That's massive. It was a lot of fun. I got a bunch of movies coming up. Uh, AMC is re-releasing a bunch of horror movies with uh, October right upon us and Halloween right around the corner. They struck a deal with A24 to re-release some of A24's movies. I'm most excited to see uh, Midsummer, Midsummer. Why well, I've never. If someone knows how to pronounce that correctly, please let me know. It's a debate with me and my friends. Midsummer is what I go with. I'm really excited. I've never seen that. It's from director Ari Aster, who did Bo is Afraid. I've heard amazing things about that movie, so very excited to watch that. And then you have Get Out was recently released. Uh, I was able to catch a viewing of that on Friday. Uh, this past Friday, to really kick off Halloween for myself. I'd never seen it, and I loved it. I will be here to talk about that one day. Maybe I'll have to do a scary movie-themed episode, because I'm going to start watching a bunch of scary movies as Halloween fast approaches. Um, Also coming out, Dumb Money. The GameStop story, one of those historical dramatizations. I've heard good things about it so far, starring Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, I'm personally really excited to watch that. I, like I said, it's my right up my alley. It's my style movie. Then there's the creator coming out uh, on the 29th. A sci-fi action. Nothing more needs to be said for me. I'll give it a shot. A future where we're fighting AI robots in war. You got me hooked. Say less. I'll be there. I'll watch it in theaters. Hopefully I could catch it in Dolby and get that better viewing experience, which I love. Uh, November 17th. The Hunger Games, a ballad of songbirds and snakes comes out. So I will likely spend some time rewatching the Hunger Games movies. While it is a prequel, so I probably don't really need to rewatch them. I want to. I'll watch them. I'll come on here. I'll talk about the Hunger Games franchise. Probably do it after the release of the new movie. So that won't be until November, mid-November to late November with it not coming out to the 17th. I've been watching a lot of war movies at home lately. Not intentionally, just kind of happened to throw them on. So maybe I'll make a top five war movie list and share that with you and recap some of the ones I've watched at home. I kind of like finding a theme for an episode. Today didn't really have a theme as I quickly threw this episode together because I wanted to come on here and talk about the WGA tenant agreement. Massive news there. Really the biggest news in the industry. 
Follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, at Sidekick Critic. I'll try to post updates so that you can know what's going on with the strike and know details about the agreement as I'm learning them too. Regardless, this was a fun episode for me. I love when I can really dive into a single industry topic like I was able to today. I love when I can do rapid fire movies. I mean, eight movies in one episode in 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever this is, is a blast for me. So hopefully next time I'm here, I'm able to share with you the details of the finalized agreement and hopefully we'll hear some reports of AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA sitting down and talking again. We will see on that. Of course, that is TBD. You never know with how fickle these studios can be, but I'm excited. Things are starting to finally look up again in the movie and film industry. Follow me at Sidekick Critic. Wherever you are, I'm there. Thank you for stopping by. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. I'll see you next time.